Amen. Let's, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for that difference. We thank You for the difference in our lives since Jesus passed by. We were at our lowest, at our darkest, in our deepest despair. But Jesus passed by. And with His touch, we were rescued. We were ransomed. We were redeemed. And we're so thankful for Your saving grace and for the incomparable gift of Jesus. Visit with us now, Father, as we study Your Word. We pray in the name of Your Son. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start out this morning by asking you a question. And the question is this. If you knew your home was going to be destroyed and you only had one minute to escape with your life and your loved ones and one or two other belongings, what would you take with you and what would you leave behind? It's something we should think about. And it should be a pretty short list of the things that we take with us. And it should be a pretty long list of of the things we're willing to walk away from. Now, this was exactly the question that was asked on October 24th, 2013, in Columbus, Georgia, on 42nd Street, as six adults and two children were watching television in their home, the room began to fill with smoke. Pretty soon, the smoke turned into flames, rapidly moving flames. It would later be determined that the fire was caused by an improperly installed water heater. And the house was engulfed. And it became apparent very quickly that the house was going to be lost. So everybody got out. And after the children were rescued and everyone made it out safely, a man who walks with a cane went back into the burning house to retrieve something he left behind. He said, I told them to to get the kids out and everything. and, And me, myself, being an alcoholic, I was trying to get my beer out said Walter Serpit. I went back into the house like a dummy and the door shut on me because this backdraft was going to kill me. Firefighters arrived and here, in addition to putting out the the flames of the house, they had to go in for a dangerous rescue on Serpit, who managed to save several cans of beer. With beers tightly in hand, he was extracted from the home without getting burned, thankfully. And the Red Cross arrived shortly after the firefighters extinguished the flames and and proceeded to help the family get back on its feet. Now, besides granting this man the dumbest human of the year award, you know, what do we find the most shocking about his actions? How do we articulate exactly why what he did was unreasonable? I thought about it a little bit, and, and I think this is it. I think what's most shocking here is that he didn't change his priorities based on a life-changing event. See, when he was sitting watching TV, his beer may have been his highest priority at the time. But once the fire broke out, and he realized he'd most likely lose everything, you would think his priorities should have been altered to reflect his newfound situation. You know, an event of that magnitude should be life 
altering. It should alter something about you, your priorities, your plans, your direction, the things you value, the things you care most about. There are things you naturally let go of because there are other things higher up on your priority list, things of more importance to you. In our spiritual lives, when we meet Christ and we genuinely accept Him as our Savior, we change. Salvation is a life-altering event that produces change in us, real change. Our priorities, our pursuits, our plans, they change. If we continue down the same road we were already on, well, then nothing was altered. The point at which we come to Christ should be marked with a landmark, a memorial of what we leave behind, what we walk away from. I'm calling these memorials of change. And that's the title for our sermon today. And I want us to take a little trip. A little trip to visit three memorials of change in Scripture. We're going to take a trip to a town named Sychar in Samaria. And we're going to visit the shores along the Sea of Galilee. And then finally, we're going to take a walk on the road to Damascus. And we're going to see at each one of these three stops, life-altering memorials of change. So open your Bibles or look up at the video screens this morning to our first text, John chapter 4. And we're going to read most of it. We're going to start in verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot ground, the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pause there. And here was this Samaritan woman at the well drawing water in the middle of the day. And that's significant because back then it was the custom of women to draw water in the evening or very early in the morning. Therefore, this woman was all alone drawing water in the middle of the day. And you've got to ask why. Why was she alone? Well, we read verses 16 to 18. She was an outcast. She was probably shunned by the other women and the the people of her community. She was alone in the middle of the day to hide from the embarrassment of her sin and the resentment it caused in others. Understand, this woman was of absolutely no standing. In Jesus' day, women could not divorce a man. Only men had that right. And when Jesus said she had had five husbands and was now living with a man, the implication is that she had been personally rejected by five husbands. So can you imagine what it must have done for this woman's self-esteem? her self-worth, her confidence. She felt rejected, unloved, alone, shameful. And here she was going from man to man trying to find just someone who would love her and care for her. She thought love would be the key to contentment and fulfillment. And let me tell you this now, there is no human love, whether it's romantic, friendship, family, whatever, There's no human love that can be your entire fulfillment. The truth of the matter is there's a hole in each one of our hearts that only the love of God can fill. That searching woman desperate for fulfillment, desperate for love, found in Christ someone who knew all about her and loved her unconditionally. He didn't care who she was. He didn't care what she had done. She longed to know that someone cared for her. She longed to know she could be loved. She longed to know that she could be forgiven. She longed to know that her life could change. And in Jesus, she found all this and more. He presented to her himself the living water. Take me and you will never thirst again. I will be your fulfillment. He would satisfy every thirst she ever had. And what happens by the end of the encounter? Let's read in verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And here's the symbolic memorial. She left her water jar behind. That jar... That jar that symbolically filled her longing. It filled her thirst. Well, it no longer did. 
what gave her fulfillment in this world would no longer satisfy. She no longer wanted well water. She wanted the living water. Her deepest needs for what she sought fulfillment or what we would call our passions. Well, her passions have changed. And that's our first point. When you come to Christ, he changes your passions. The things you try to find contentment and in which you sought fulfillment will no longer satisfy you. Why? Well, you've changed. Your passions have changed. The things you're passionate about in your life have changed. You desire something more, something deeper, something greater. Your spiritual eyes have been opened. Your spiritual appetite has been wet. When she tasted the living water of Christ, that well water would never again satisfy. You know, about a year ago, I made the mistake, inadvertently, of buying a Lego Star Wars set for my youngest son, Parker, who was then two years old. And it was kind of inadvertent. I mean, at some point, you just want some cool toys for your kids because, you know, dad plays with them too. And you get tired of Elmo after a while. So I bought him Legos before, but these were Star Wars Legos. Well, the minute he saw for the first time starships and lightsabers, his curiosity and imagination went into overdrive. He wanted to know more, so I showed him Lego Star Wars videos. Well, he was ecstatic. Tim, you know what I'm talking about. He wanted more. I then showed him clips from actual Star Wars movies. Oh, he fell in love. He fell in love with a make-believe adventure world in a galaxy far, far away. And at that moment, I knew somewhat regretfully that the world of Sesame Street would never again be enough. His eyes were open to something far greater, far bigger than the confines of a sunny day on Sesame Street. And that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. The world and the things of the world that once were enough for us, well, they'll never again be enough for us. What it takes to satisfy us changes. Our spiritual thirst is awakened. We want more than this world can offer. And in Christ, we find more. I love how Jesus approaches this change. He never tells us our passions are worthless, even when they are, and expects us to just walk away from them. He offers us something so much better that the choice becomes moot. We walk away from our old passions because we found in him something so much greater. Thomas Chalmers explained it so well when he said this, the heart must have something to cling to. And never by its voluntary consent will the heart so detach itself from all its attachments that there shall not be one remaining object that can draw its attention or solicit its affections. Here it is. The love of the world cannot be removed by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. When our passions have changed, that well water that satisfied us before becomes worthless to us. 
Friend, if you've already come to Christ, have you let go of that water jar? Or are you still trying to satisfy yourself with the well water of this world? You know, it won't work. It won't fulfill you. You aren't the same person you were back then. Your passions have changed. You won't find what your soul longs for at any of this world's wells. Let go of those fancies and frivolities that do nothing but waste time and leave you empty or even worse. Seek your fulfillment in Christ, in His Word, in His presence, in His service, and with His people. Amen? Examine your passions. That's our first point. Examine what you're passionate about. As believers, we should have a holy passion to follow Christ. Our passion drives our thoughts, drives our actions, our efforts, how our time is spent. Pursuing a holy passion can accomplish so much for the kingdom of God. Thomas Connellan said, One person with passion is better than 40 who are merely interested. Have your passions changed since Jesus walked by? Have your earthly passions been replaced with a holy passion? When we come to Christ, He changes our passions. Amen? Amen. Second point now. Our second memorial. We're going to leave Samaria and the abandoned water jar. And we're going to journey to the shores of Galilee. And as we walk along the Sea of Galilee, we spot something on the shore. It's an abandoned boat. And a pile of empty fishing nets. Let's read Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. An abandoned boat and some empty fishing nets. They tell quite a story, don't they? You used to cast your nets for fish. Let me teach you how to cast your nets for souls. These ordinary fishermen, well, they likely had been fishing all their lives. They learned at a young age. They practiced. They trained. It became their trade. It became their livelihood, their life's pursuit. What do you pursue? What do you spend your days, your time, your efforts pursuing? The most common answer, a better job. Bigger house, bigger bank account, nicer car. A large national poll was taken in 2013. Over half a million people were polled. And it asked exactly that question. And the top answer, accounting for a staggering 54% of all responses, was this. A better life. I spend my life pursuing a better life. Wow, is there anything more circular and more futile and when your last breath is drawn and spent and your eyes close to this world, what happens in the next? 
Does that better car show up? Does the big house come with you? Can you finally enjoy that big retirement fund? Friend, Christ came to change your pursuits. To give you better pursuits. To give you eternal pursuits. When our pursuits are focused on the kingdom of God, there are eternal benefits to them. These disciples left their earthly pursuits behind and took on eternal pursuits. When Christ touches your life, we heard He changes your passions and too He changes your pursuits. Do you find yourself chasing the same things you chased before you came to Christ? If so, friends, something's wrong. When you have Christ, there's no need to chase a better life. You have a better life. Start enjoying it. Start living it. There's an unspeakable joy in living all out for Christ. In serving Him. In reaching out to lost souls to offer the hope of salvation. To offer what we've found. In building for the kingdom of God. You know what the ironic thing is? All that earthly pursuit for the things you think will make you happy ends in vain. Those things just don't make you happy for long. That new car quickly loses its luster. The new job ends up being more work. That bigger income means higher taxes. That relationship you forced your way into leads to nothing but conflict and heartache. In this world, the pursuit of happiness is never over. It never ends. Something always shakes that happiness loose. And there you are again on to the next pursuit. If your happiness is based on the things of the world, it's built on quickly sinking sand. Friend, build on the rock. Let your pursuits and passions and time and effort be spent on something for Christ. That's a pursuit that will not only satisfy you here in the now, but will be worthwhile long after. Pursuing God is a pursuit that doesn't end while we have breath in this life, but unlike the pursuits of the world, it satisfies. A.W. Tozer once said about this, he said, what I'm anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I want to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing Him. I want to see in them the great joy of having God, yet always wanting Him. That is a beautiful paradox. That should be our pursuit. That's a worthwhile pursuit, friend. Have your pursuits changed? When Christ touches your life, He changes your passions and He changes your pursuits. And for our third and last memorial... We take a trip and take a walk down a dusty road heading to a city named Damascus. We saw an empty water jar. We saw abandoned fishing nets. And now as we walk on the Damascus road, let's read Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. His battle wasn't with God's people, it was with God. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Time out, Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This was the man who wrote much of the New Testament. The greatest apostle. Saul, who later took on the name Paul. Sure didn't start that way. He was a man bent on exterminating the Christian faith. He was a highly educated Jew on a mission that no human being could stop. He was the Jewish enforcer. In his eyes, Christians were a threat to everything he held dear. All the traditions, the laws, the legalism of his faith were being threatened. And he wholeheartedly, genuinely believed that well, by capturing, imprisoning, even killing followers of Jesus, to eradicate the Christian faith, he was serving and honoring God. His vision was skewed. His perspective was off. When he encountered Jesus on that Damascus road, what did he leave behind? He left behind his vision as a symbol of his old perspective. When God touches us, third point, he changes our perspective. He changes the way we see things prior to our conversion. When we're in this world, we're influenced by its ways, its thinking, its perspective. We take on that secular thinking. Our vision is skewed to the baseless principles of this world. Principles that would have us believe there's no absolute truth. Each individual defines his own truth. As long as you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. If it feels good to you, do it. You're the most important person in your life. You have to love yourself above all others. You're the center of the universe. What a load of garbage. But that's what we're fed day and night. 
That's what we're taught to believe. That's the basis for our perspective in life. God changes all that. He turns all that on its head. When we come to him, he replaces our vision. He gives us a new perspective, a heavenly perspective. He takes our eyes off of ourselves and off of this world and he places them onto him. We begin to see things differently. We begin to process the circumstances of our lives differently. We begin to handle situations differently. Why? Our perspective is different. We realize the world doesn't revolve around us and our desires and our needs and our wants and our wills and what we don't have and what we want. We see properly. We see through the principles of God and the impact of eternity. Someone wants to find it as this perspective is not what we see, but the way we see it. Our circumstances don't change, but how we view them does. Our vision is altered. In the Korean War, during the Battle of the Chosin Reservoir, the Marines were cut off behind enemy lines and the army had written off the 1st Marine Division as being lost because honestly they were surrounded by 22 enemy divisions. It was a foregone conclusion. We lost them. No help would be sent. It was over. They were dejected at first. But after a speech by their commander, the Marines made it out, inflicting the highest casualty ratio on an enemy in history and destroying seven entire enemy divisions in the process. Marine Commander Lewis B. Puller gave a pep talk and he was quoted as saying at the time, men, they're in front of us. They're behind us. And we're flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. <laughs> and that was all it took. What changed? Did the circumstances change? No. Did some of the enemies flee? No. Were reinforcements called in? <laughs> the only change was their perspective. And that made all the difference. When Dwight L. Moody was in London during one of his famous evangelistic tours, several British pastors visited him. And they were curious. They, they wanted to know how, how and why this poorly educated American was so effective in winning souls for Christ. And Moody took the three men up to his hotel room. And he said, I want you to look out the window. And he asked each one in turn what he saw. And one by one, the men described the people in the park below. Then Moody looked out of the window and tears started streaming down his face. Why? What do you see, Mr. Moody? Asked one of the men. I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they don't find the Savior. Obviously, Moody saw people differently than the average observer does. And because he saw eternal souls where others saw only people strolling in a park, he approached life with a different agenda. Same scene, different perspective. A heavenly perspective. How's your perspective today? How's your vision today? Are you filled with 
with hope while keeping your eyes fixed on Christ? Or are you looking around at your circumstances, at your lot, what you don't have? Or are you fixated on this world and its belief system and its pursuits? When God changes you, your perspective can't help but be changed. That day on the Damascus Road, Paul lost his vision. He left his old perspective behind and he gained a heavenly one. Memorials of change. An abandoned water jar. Empty fishing nets. An abandoned eyesight. Three things that were left behind when a life was changed by Christ. Memorials of change. They represent our passions, our pursuits, and our perspectives. If you were to go back today, in your mind, to the place where you met Christ, what would you see? Is there a memorial there? Do you see the strewn remnants of the man or woman you used to be? The sin you left behind? The pride you finally gave up? The pursuits that left you unfulfilled? Do you find your old way of thinking left behind? Your old addictions left behind? Your old toxic relationships left behind. Do you see anything? You should. You should find something there that you walked away from. Something that God has replaced with much, much more. Friend, I don't know where you're at today. But I want to ask you, are you still trying to fulfill yourself with what you tried before Christ? Are you still chasing the same pursuits you chased before Christ? Are you still holding on to the same perspective, the same skewed vision and wrong thoughts you had before Christ? If so, there should be warning flags in your spiritual life. When Christ genuinely changes you, these things change. You can no longer be fulfilled by this world. You choose to no longer pursue the things of this world. You choose to no longer think the way this world does. You leave these things behind. And if you're still holding on to them today, then honestly, your life-altering event wasn't really life-altering, was it? Nothing in your life was altered. Genuine salvation produces genuine change through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not us. It's not by our power. It's not mind over matter. It's God-given. It's Spirit-filled. It's supernatural. We make the decision. He provides the power. And everything you leave behind will be replaced by far more and far better. We have a God that specializes in better and in more. You never lose when you give something up for the Lord. You're not only giving up something to which you were enslaved, you're giving it up for something far greater. Truly, there is freedom in the things we leave behind. Today, Jesus is passing by. We heard it in the song, since Jesus passed by, He's passing by today. If you're ready for that change in your life, then reach out. Reach out for Him in all genuineness. Ask Him to forgive your sins and accept and receive Him 
as your personal Savior. Only by His power can you walk away from this world, its passions, its pursuits, its perspectives. And as you grow by His grace, you will look back and remember how far He's brought you. You'll look back and you'll see those landmarks, those memorials of change. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You for the change that only You can produce in our lives. Genuine change. Only You can change our empty lives and our vain pursuits and passions. Only You can fix our wrong perspectives. Only You can take our chasing of the wind and give our lives meaning and eternal purpose. Father, only You can save us and only You can change us. If there's someone here today that longs that longs for that life-altering, life-changing salvation, let them know that today can be the first day of the rest of their lives. Let them know that through the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed His life in their place, they can receive eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Let them accept Your free gift of salvation today and receive Your Son as their Savior. And for every believer here today, Father, we look back at the memorials of change in our lives, at the place where You met us, and we can only say, thank You. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your mercy and Your grace and for a love that loved us so deeply You refused to leave us where we were. Help us to pledge anew to live lives worthy of the sacrifice that was made for us. Father, with grateful hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.